On this episode of Newt's World, my guest is a longtime friend and fellow historian, Dr. Alan Gelzo. He is director of the James Madison Program Initiative on Politics and Statesmanship and senior research scholar in the Council of the Humanities at Princeton University. He is the New York Times bestselling author of Gettysburg and his new book about the Civil War, Confederate General Robert E. Lee, A Life, is out this Tuesday. Alan, I really appreciate your taking the time to share with us, and I have to start with a really simple question. What led you to decide in the middle of the current left-wing maelstrom that Robert E. Lee was the right topic? Well, in the first place, the maelstrom hadn't quite started when I started this project. I really began work on this after I'd finished Gettysburg, The Last Invasion. That, of course, was published in 2013. And by the time the hurly-burly over the book was done, which was also tied into the hurly-burly over the 150th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg, I looked around, thinking about a topic, and began feeling out the ground around Robert E. Lee. And then in 2014, made it official with my publisher. And I've been working at it ever since. But that does mean that I actually started this project before much of the explosions over Lee had rocked the environment. At that point, Lee was not nearly the touchstone for frenzy that he has become, especially since 2017 in Charlottesville. What led me to Lee was probably some odd questions, because I'm coming at this as a Yankee from Yankee land. You know, I've <laughs> lived almost all of my life in Pennsylvania. I've never lived south of the Mason-Dixon line. And I've written mostly about Lincoln and about the Union rather than about the Confederacy. So this was somewhat different terrain. Why was I venturing into it? Two basic reasons. One is when you look at the landscape of the Civil War and you look at the great figures that you could write about, well, there's Lincoln, yes. There's also Grant, but Grant has been the subject of eight freestanding biographies in the last 35 years, each one of them longer than the one preceding it, the most recent one, Ron Chernow's, topped out at over a thousand pages. Then you could turn to William Tecumseh Sherman. Well, he's had 10 biographies in the last 35 years. So that field has been pretty well plowed up. After that, you start to get figures like George McClellan or George Thomas or William Rosecrans. Well, they're not nearly quite so interesting to work with. So I turned my attention because if you're looking for the next really important figure in the Civil War, when you turn away from Lincoln, if you turn away from Union subjects, you only have Robert E. Lee. And as it turned out, Robert E. Lee had not had the kind of thick biographical snowfall that these other figures had had. There was the great four-volume R.E. Lee, written by Douglas Southall Freeman in the 1930s, won a Pulitzer Prize. But Freeman almost sucked all the air out of the subject because his work was so long and so comprehensive. Following on Freeman, there had been a handful of biographies, most recently Amory Thomas's 1995 biography of Lee, but that was 1995. That was 25 years ago. So I thought, well, perhaps there's an opportunity here. Perhaps the time is ripe to consider Robert E. Lee. So that's one reason. I'm looking for a major Civil War topic to write about. Lee seems the most likely. But there's another thing, too. I'm intrigued by this odd question. How do you write the biography of someone who has committed treason? In some respects, it's easy to write about Lincoln. He's a great man. You can admire him without stint. Likewise for Grant, this remarkable man who rises in just eight years from clerking in his father's leather goods store in Galena, Illinois, to becoming president of the United States. Even Sherman. I mean, Sherman does not, quote unquote, rise quite to the heights of the others, but he makes up for it in the sheer colorfulness of his character. But Lee... When you venture onto the ground of Robert E. Lee, you are dealing with someone who committed treason. I don't really have a better word for it. I don't enjoy throwing the word around. But my father was a career soldier. He took the oath. My son is a soldier. He's a captain in the army. He took the oath. I took the oath when I 
joined the National Council on the Humanities back in 2006. And I take that seriously. All of us have taken that seriously. So I look at Robert E. Lee and I see someone who took an oath to the United States of America when he was commissioned in 1829. And no one released him from that oath. Instead, he raised his hand against the United States, against the flag, against the Constitution. That's serious. How do you write the biography of somebody like that? It's a category that I call difficult biography. There are some biographies that are easy to write because the people that you deal with are easy, as I was saying, like Lincoln. But what about the people who are inconsistent? What about the people who make disastrous mistakes? How do you write a biography of Neville Chamberlain? How can you write about a Chamberlain who just totally opaque, just did not see Hitler for what he was? Frankly, even how do you write easily about Ulysses Grant, who issues an anti-Semitic order in 1862? But especially, how do you write a biography of someone like Lee? So that took me into the grounds of what I'm calling difficult biography. And I thought, now here's a challenge. I want to see what comes out of this. So for both of those reasons, because he's a target there waiting, but also because he is a different kind of biography that I'd ever attempted. And so I went to work on Robert E. Lee, and next week the book will be out, and we will see the results. I'm curious, as you immersed yourself in Lee, what was the biggest surprise to you? The biggest surprise is what an impact was made on him by the absence of his father. The psychologist will tell you, and I don't mean to psychologize Lee, I'm not a licensed psychoanalyst, but the psychologist will tell you that there's probably no trauma in someone's life worse than the loss of a parent before adolescence. And in Lee's case, what he lost was a famous parent, and that was Light Horse Harry Lee, the famous cavalry commander of George Washington in the American Revolution. One of that circle of young men that Washington drew about him, like John Lawrence and Alexander Hamilton and Lafayette. Light Horse Harry Lee was one of them. Light Horse Harry was a talented commander. He really made his name as a soldier, but once the revolution was over, it was a steady corkscrew downwards for him. Bad political decisions, bad financial decisions. He burned through every bit of cash, lost control of the estate that Robert was born on, Stratford Hall, and then got beaten to a pulp by an anti-federalist mob, by a democratic mob in Baltimore in 1813, where he had gone to support a fellow federalist newspaper editor. And after that, Light Horse Harry takes off for the West Indies. Now he's saying, well, I'm going to recuperate. I'm going to restore my fortunes. Robert never sees him again. Harry bounced around the West Indies, finally returned to the United States, mortally ill, made landfall in Georgia, died there two weeks later. Never saw Virginia again, never saw his family again, never saw Robert again. So Robert last sees his father when he is, what, six years old? That's it. And what's more, it's his father's reputation, too. His father's reputation is that of a spendthrift, and unreliable, and undependable. And the message that that sent was, don't get mixed up with the Lees. Don't get connected to the Lees, because you'll regret it. And Robert grows up bearing that burden. And that weighs on him all of his life. When he's growing up, people are always saying, aha, this is Robert Lee. Oh, he's the son of Light Horse Harry. Never once reading what must have gone on in his mind when he's being introduced that way, when he's being identified through this father who was not a father, who deserted him. And I think what that spawns in Robert Lee are three things that are really important for understanding his character. One is he's a perfectionist. And you see this all through his life, even as a general in command of the Army of Northern Virginia. He's a perfectionist. And no wonder he's a perfectionist, because in some senses, what he's trying to do, he's trying to make right all the mistakes that his father made and that other members of his family made. He had an older half-brother, by the way, 
who was also named Harry Lee. Harry Lee botched things even worse than Lighthorse Harry. And I won't enter into the details because they are seamy, even by 19th century standards. But let's put it this way. It earned him the nickname Black Horse Harry Lee and exile to France. So Robert is growing up in this environment where he has to cleanse the Lee's name. He has to sponge away all these deficits. And it makes him a real perfectionist. He demands a lot of himself. He demands a lot of others. He has the demeanor of great dignity. But get underneath that demeanor, and there is a vivid temper. And his staffers during the war remark on that. Walter Taylor, who was one of his military secretaries, one of his adjutant, Taylor said, you know, you get Lee annoyed and you will pay for it. And he said, you could tell that Lee's temper was rising because his color would change a bit. He would get reddish and he'd have this little jerk to his neck. Mm, mm, mm. No, no, no. And then it would explode. Then afterwards, Lee would say to somebody like Taylor, as he did say to Taylor, in fact, why did you let that man into my tent? Why did you let him make me lose my temper? <laughs> See, blaming Taylor for it. So there's a real perfectionism that is there that shows up at moments like that. The other two factors that Lee oscillates between are a yearning for independence. He's sick of apologizing for his father and for the others. He wants to stand on his own. He wants people to recognize him and take him for himself. And he really wants that independence. But he also wants security. Security, of course, is what his father robbed him of. And the problem is that independence and security don't always go together. Security is what keeps him from the army. From the day he's commissioned in 1829, right up until he stands in his resignation to Winfield Scott on April 20th, 1861. He didn't particularly enjoy being in the army. He was in the Corps of Engineers. He was a very good engineer, but he's always in his correspondence. He's always talking about how you know, I'd love to say goodbye to my uncle Sam. I'd love to be out on my own. But as much as he wanted that independence, he also wanted the security the army gave because in the United States Army, in the pre-Civil War years, it really was a sinecure. There was no retirement system. So you had officers who stayed in the Army, stayed on the payrolls from the day they were commissioned until the day they keeled over as non-Nigerians. And there was no law that inhibited that. So you had security. I mean, the Army might not be pleasant, but security. And he wanted security. So he oscillates among these things. Perfectionism, security, independence. And he never can quite nail them down in the right order until the last five years of his life. And that's when, after the Civil War is over, he goes out and becomes president of Washington College in Lexington, Virginia. It was the strangest decision among all the decisions Lee made because Lee didn't particularly like educational institutions. He'd been offered a job teaching at West Point, turned it down. He said, I'm just not made of the stuff that gets up in front of a classroom and talks to students. He's ordered over his objections to become superintendent of West Point in the 1850s. He hates the job. He can't wait when it's done. And he actually, at that point, leaves the Corps of Engineers and accepts a commission as lieutenant colonel of the 2nd Cavalry down in Texas, chasing Comanches and bandits around the countryside. He preferred that to West Point. It's not until you get to those four years and he accepts this job as president of Washington College, a college which was almost bankrupt. It hardly had a pulse. Lee comes in there. He puts the place back up on its feet, expands the student body, brings it to a point where it's literally a rival to the University of Virginia. And surprise of surprises, you know what he's really good at? Fundraising. Robert E. Lee was just exceptionally talented at shaking the apples out of trees. And curiously enough, northern trees as well. He would get northerners to give lots of money. George Peabody from Massachusetts, Cyrus McCormick from Chicago, lawyers from New York City. He gets them to send money to Washington College. And I think it's in those last five years as president of Washington College. He finally gets the stars lined up. He finally gets the independence he wants. He gets the security he wants. He gets the perfection that he can impose 
on the students. He says to incoming students when they meet with him as the president, he says, we have no rules here. The only expectation is that you will behave yourself as a gentleman. Now, people read that and they think, oh, isn't that so generous of Robert E. Lee? Isn't that so open-minded? No rule book or anything? No, it's not. What it means is Robert E. Lee himself is the judge, jury, and executioner of what the definition of a gentleman is, and is Robert E. Lee who will exercise the decisions. So he got perfectionism there as well. If I remember correctly, he actually has a pretty good career in the Army. Yes, he does. He's commissioned into the engineers. That's not hugely a surprise. First, because he really did have a talent for mathematics. That was shown early on when he was a boy in school in Alexandria, Virginia. He went to Benjamin Hallowell's school. And Hallowell afterwards remembered that he could send Lee to the board. And Lee would do these perfect diagrams. He'd do these perfect equations. I don't know if you'd quite want to typify him as a math nerd. We don't really have enough observation and data to say that. But he certainly had talent with math. So he goes to West Point, first because it's free, and what's left of his family doesn't really have any money. But secondly, because it is the engineering school in the United States. There is no other engineering school in the United States at that time. So if you want an engineering education, you go to West Point. And the surprise is that many people did go to West Point, got the engineering education, served in the Army for six months, resigned and went into private practice, and were wildly successful. The backbone of the civil engineering profession in America before the Civil War was graduates of West Point. So that's a natural decision for Lee to go to West Point. He graduates second in his class. He's just inches behind the fellow who finishes first. And he's commissioned into the engineers. And he spends 30 years on a variety of very difficult engineering projects. Technically speaking, these are coastal engineering problems, which civil engineers will tell you are some of the most difficult and intractable and abstract kinds of projects. And he does coastal engineering projects at what is now Fort Pulaski, at Fortress Monroe in Virginia, in St. Louis. He rebuilds the St. Louis waterfront. He's building Fort Carroll in Baltimore Harbor. He's the staff engineer for Fort Hamilton at the Narrows, guarding the approaches to New York City. And then, of course, superintendent at West Point, which is still, in the 1850s, an engineering school. So he has what you could call a successful career as an engineer. He makes a mark as an engineer. Yet the thing that people notice about him in his military career actually isn't his engineering projects. It's the one incident where he actually is involved in a war, and that is the Mexican War. When the Mexican War broke out, he was very eager to get into action, because action equaled promotion. And promotion in the old army, and especially the Corps of Engineers, was glacial. So he looks upon the Mexican War as an opportunity, which he's afraid is going to pass him by. No, he does get orders, though. The orders bring him to Texas. He goes into Mexico with John Wool's expedition. And then he gets forwarded to Winfield Scott to serve with Scott in this dramatic campaign that Scott launches, landing at Veracruz on the coast of Mexico. It's a joint services operation. It's actually the first example of a joint services operation in American military history. And Scott makes it work. They land, they capture Veracruz, and then they start on this trek inland to capture Mexico City. Scott tags Lee to work with him as an engineer on his staff. And very quickly, Scott, who had a very sharp eye for talent, Scott realizes that Lee has got a lot more going for him than most of the others. And he begins to use Lee over and over again, not just for engineering projects, he begins to use him primarily for reconnaissance. Lee becomes the eyes of Scott's army. And over and over again, all the way up to the conquest of Mexico City itself, Robert E. Lee is acting as an extension of Winfield Scott. So much so that years later, Scott would tell Robert E. Johnson that most of the credit that he earned for the Mexico City campaign really rested with Robert E. Lee. And he made a comment to some officers later, that if he lay on his deathbed and the president of the United States wanted the name of someone who would succeed to his command as general in chief, Scott would say without any hesitation, 
let it be Robert E. Lee. So he did carve out quite a reputation in the Mexican War. The problem was when that war was over, it was over. And back he went to engineering projects. And that was when life got very slow for him again. Do we have any indication of how well he did in Texas with the cavalry? Well, it's hard to measure because there was not a whole lot in the way of demand on him in Texas. He goes to Texas as lieutenant colonel of the 2nd Cavalry. It's one of two new cavalry regiments that Congress authorizes in the 1850s because as a result of the Mexican War, we acquired this huge stretch of territory in the Southwest that was called the Mexican Session with a C. The Mexicans were ceding it to us as part of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. And policing that required much more than just the usual application of infantry or even artillery. You were trying to take account of Comanche, of Apache, of at least half a dozen other tribes that were very mobile across that landscape and very reluctant to be controlled. So Lee is really entering into an entirely, an entirely new environment. So he takes this second in command position of the second cavalry, which is stationed in Texas. And the second cavalry is going to get spread out company by company from one post here, one post there, all along a line of posts that bordered what they called the staked plains in Western Texas. And the principal idea was keeping an eye on and confronting the Comanche. His senior officer as Colonel of the Second Cavalry is Albert Sidney Johnston, whom people will meet again in the Civil War as a Confederate general. Johnston very quickly gets pulled off to become department commander. So for all practical purposes, Lee is in charge of the Second Cavalry. That means he's got to manage all of these outbreaks of Comanche horse raids. He's got to deal with disgruntled Mexicans along the Rio Grande border, some of whom own property on both sides of the Rio Grande and who were not at all happy at the way they were being treated by the United States government. He has to administer the department. He's got to deal with the logistics of supplying these posts. Even on two occasions, he has to preside at the burial service of children of non-commissioned officers in the second cavalry. So it's not what you would call an exciting assignment. And although he spends a good deal of time in the saddle and chases a number of Comanche bands around the countryside, he never actually fires a shot in anger. In fact, one of the curiosities with Robert E. Lee is Robert E. Lee never actually leads troops in combat until the Harper's Ferry incident in 1859, when he's called upon to suppress the insurrection of John Brown and his raiders at the Harper's Ferry arsenal. Before that, even in the Mexican War, he was not in command of troops under fire. And when he's with the 2nd Cavalry in Texas, it's more like mounted police duty than anything else. And even then, never actually gets into any kind of confrontation or firefight with the tribes or especially with the Comanche. It's not until 1859 that he actually has to take charge of troops who are really doing the work of soldiers under fire in combat. And of course, ideologically as a Southerner, being sent to arrest John Brown was a reasonable behavior. This is the curious thing, Newt. We think of Lee as a Southerner. We think of Lee as a Virginian. And when he finally comes to this great moment of decision in 1861, he'll frequently invoke the fact that he's a Virginian, he can't raise his hand against Virginia, he can't draw his sword against Virginia, his native state. Really? Was Virginia his native state? Well, he was born in Virginia. He was born on the northern neck of Virginia, right on the Potomac at Stratford Hall, which, by the way, is a marvelous place to visit. You've got to drive down from Washington to Fredericksburg and then hang a left. But if you follow out along the northern neck between the Potomac and the Rappahannock to Stratford Hall, Stratford Hall is just absolutely marvelous. It's a wonderful place to visit. Lee was 
born in Virginia, but the family moves very quickly to Alexandria. And Alexandria at that point is part of the District of Columbia. It's not part of Virginia. Alexandria is not retroceded back to Virginia until the 1830s. And Robert Lee has long since left by that point. So he grows up as a citizen, so to speak, of the District of Columbia. And then he set off to various places, to Georgia, to St. Louis, to New York. He actually spends more time consistently in New York at Fort Hamilton, at West Point. He actually spends more time consistently there than in Virginia. So what kind of a Virginian is Robert E. Lee exactly? That's an interesting question to explore because he really spends his time in many, many other places, including Texas. Talk about being at a far reach from Virginia. So why do you think, given that, and I think that, in fact, Scott did offer him command of the American army if he would stay in the Union. Why do you think, given that, that he chose to go to Virginia? Well, I think there are two reasons. One is that Virginia symbolizes for him not some romantic old dominion. It symbolizes for him the family connections that acted as the net that caught him and his mother and his siblings when Light Horse Harry abandoned them. Lee's mother was a Carter. That still means something in Virginia. And it was Carter relations, it was Fitzhugh relatives who really kept the family afloat. It's William Henry Fitzhugh who writes the recommendation letter for Lee for West Point. It's those family connections. That's what Virginia means for Robert E. Lee. And that's what he's reluctant to raise his hand against. For him, it has a real personification in all of those people that he had depended upon so much. The second thing is that when he resigns, it's not a straightforward event. He doesn't go into Winfield Scott, get the offer, turn it down and say, I'm going south to serve the Confederacy. It's incremental. He goes into Scott, he tells Scott, I can't accept this command. But the reasons he offers for it are curious because there are different accounts of the reasons. And in one account, there's a curious reference to, well, I can't accept this commission because that's going to jeopardize my family's property. He had married into the Custises and the Custis family owned Arlington. We think today of Arlington as the National Cemetery. But Arlington, in Lee's day, Arlington was this big Custis estate perched on a bluff overlooking the Potomac, overlooking the national capital. When his father-in-law died, George Washington Park Custis, this will give you an idea of the reputation of the Lees, old Custis cuts Lee out of the will. Lee had married the only surviving child of the Custis family, Mary Randolph Custis. But old man Custis doesn't leave Arlington to Robert E. Lee. He leaves it to Lee's oldest son, George Washington Custis Lee. He cuts Lee out of it. All that Lee and his wife get is a life interest to live there. That meant that any decision Lee made in reference to Scott's offer was going to have an immediate impact on his children's property, and especially on Arlington. So what is he thinking? He says to Scott, I can't put in jeopardy the future of my children. Translated, what that means is one of two things is going to happen. Virginia is going to secede from the Union. And if I take command of the Union armies, then Virginia is going to seize Arlington. They're going to confiscate it. Of course they are, because it's strategic. You could put a couple of batteries of artillery up there and completely command the federal capital. On the other hand, if I decline this command, I could remain neutral. Well, remaining neutral might not work either, because then you might get confiscated either by the Confederate government or the federal government. But if I resign and then heed these invitations that I get to go to Richmond, then there won't be a war. And I'll be able to keep Arlington for my children. And even better, I'll go to Richmond and I will serve as the broker for a peace settlement. 
To us today, that sounds bizarre because we think, all right, there's the firing on Fort Sumter, there's the secession of Virginia, there's war. It's inevitable. Everybody knew it was going to happen. No, everyone did not know it was going to happen. In the middle of April, everything was up in the air. And many people believe that secession was a temporary moment, that you were going to have the United States split into three or four or five different confederacies. But after a while, everybody would get back together in a national convention and there would be a reconstruction of the union. By the way, that's when the term reconstruction first gets used. We're going to have a reconstruction of the union in 1861. Robert E. Lee, according to his cousin Cassius Francis Lee, who also lived in Alexandria, the confidence was that Robert E. Lee would go to Richmond and help broker a peace settlement that would help reunite the country eventually. And that would make Robert E. Lee an even greater figure in American history than George Washington, because George Washington delivers us as an independent nation, but Robert E. Lee could preserve us at our moment of greatest crisis. And these are the terms in which Lee is trying to come to this decision. So he resigns his commission in the army. He goes to Richmond. When he gets to Richmond late in April of 1861, he finds the horse has already galloped out of the stable. Virginia has seceded. It's going to join the Confederacy. But for a month thereafter, he's constantly saying, well, the Virginia forces must not provoke anything. Stonewall Jackson, all right? Stonewall Jackson, who isn't Stonewall yet. Stonewall Jackson is at Harper's Ferry with units of the Virginia militia. Jackson sees Harper's Ferry as militarily untenable. So he crosses the Potomac to Maryland Heights to occupy that. Lee orders him back. Lee says, you mustn't do anything to provoke a situation. And that's the line he takes all the way through other Virginia units and other Virginia installations along the northern rim of the border of Virginia with Maryland. Don't do anything to provoke. Why? Because we're going to get a peace settlement. Well, that doesn't happen. And I think Robert E. Lee, by the time we get to June of 1861, Lee is already telling his wife, maybe I'll just resign now. Maybe I'll just wash my hands of this whole business. But it doesn't happen that way. The federal government seizes Arlington. The war takes off. And Lee finds himself sucked further and further into the vortex and emerges from the vortex of the early part of the war as the person to whom Jefferson Davis is going to turn to take command of Confederate forces in Virginia in 1862. It's incremental. He does not set out as a partisan for the Confederacy. If anything, all through the war, he is the Confederacy's principal critic. He's always telling people how incompetent the Confederate Congress is, how weak-willed Confederate citizens are. They all expect to win this war without having to pay a dime. And worse, He's harassing Jefferson Davis by telling Davis, we're going to have to emancipate the slaves because unless we emancipate the slaves, slavery is going to be the millstone around the neck of the Confederacy. No foreign power is going to want to come to our aid. Of course, Davis is not listening until the very end of the war, but this is the kind of thing that Lee is saying, and that earns Lee a reputation. And early on, before he becomes the victorious Confederate general, there's a lot of whispering behind Lee's back that Robert E. Lee is not really one of us. His heart is really not in the Confederate cause. We really can't trust Robert E. Lee. You find a wonderful description of this in Mary Chestnut's diary. One of his earliest assignments once the war begins is to go into West Virginia. And if I remember correctly, it's not a particularly glorious campaign. You couldn't have watched Lee in West Virginia and imagined the Lee who would emerge a few months later. No, no, you certainly could not. There's a number of reasons for that. One is that Lee is sent into West Virginia by Jefferson Davis with no explicit authority. He has no command status. He can't tell people what to do and expect them to obey it. And that's bad in Western Virginia because you have a number of almost quasi-independent operators like John Floyd and Henry Wise. They've raised their own troops. They have their own little rebel armies. And these characters are not talking to each other. They hate each other. They're not cooperating with each other. They probably dislike each other more than they dislike the federal troops that are crossing the Ohio River into Western Virginia. So Lee has to try to yoke these very unequal horses to some kind of campaign wagon, and he's not very successful because he hasn't got an authority over them. 
he also has to deal with the fact that Western Virginia is largely unionist in sentiment. He can't go into Western Virginia and expect to be hailed as the savior of a Confederate region because it's not a Confederate region. You know, slavery has only the most tenuous hold in the mountains of Western Virginia. And Lee is constantly complaining about how these Western Virginia civilians are always betraying the movements of his troops to the Union forces. They are you know, clearly pro-Union there. So he's operating in a hostile environment, and he doesn't have much in the way of resources. The weather is bad. The terrain is bad. You add that all up, and it required more than Robert E. Lee at that moment had at his fingertips to make something work. So his campaign in Western Virginia is really a flop. And if we were to judge Robert E. Lee by that standard, then he would probably go to the bottom of the ladder of all Confederate generals, and we wouldn't be writing biographies about him. <laughs> what happens when he goes back to Richmond that rehabilitates him and leads Davis to ignore his West Virginia experience? Davis had known Lee from before the war. It's Davis who really engineers Lee's commission as lieutenant colonel of the 2nd Cavalry. Davis, having been Secretary of War while Lee was superintendent at West Point, Davis conceived a pretty healthy respect for Lee. So he chooses to overlook the failure of the Western Virginia campaign. He sends Lee to South Carolina to take charge of the defenses there. It's a pretty vacuous job. And it's not until the spring of 1862 when the Confederacy first begins to realize that it's losing ground. Ulysses Grant has taken Fort Donelson and Fort Henry and cracked open the shield of the Western Confederacy. George McClellan has begun his big movement toward Richmond. And so Davis brings Lee back as an advisor. At the end of May 1862, the field commander of the Army of Northern Virginia, Joe Johnston, who'd been a classmate of Lee's at West Point, is seriously wounded at the Battle of Seven Pines. And turning around, Davis chooses Lee to take his place. At first, people said, oh, no, no, this is a terrible mistake. You know, Lee did poorly in Western Virginia. Lee's an engineer. All he can do is think about digging fortifications. Oh, did they underestimate Robert E. Lee. Lee takes charge of the Army of Northern Virginia, and after a month of sizing up the situation, he goes on the offensive against McClellan, takes McClellan completely by surprise, forces McClellan to withdraw from Richmond, pins McClellan into an encampment at Harrison's Landing on the James River, and then turns and bounds northward to northern Virginia, where he defeats another federal army at the Second Battle of Bull Run, crosses the Potomac. He's headed for Pennsylvania. Because if there's one thing that Robert E. Lee was head and shoulders over every other Confederate commander in doing, it was his strategic grasp. If we evaluate great commanders by these three standards, their strategic grasp, their tactical grasp, their operational and logistical grasp. Lee certainly excelled as the strategic grasp because Lee understood, as few other Confederates did, that the Confederacy could not go a long, heavyweight, 15-round bout. It simply didn't have the wherewithal. The North would outlast it. Lee understood that if the Confederacy was to succeed, it had to strike a knockout in the first round or two, a surprise knockout. And the way to do that is cross the Potomac into Pennsylvania and there wreak as much havoc as possible, so much so that the political fallout will force the Lincoln administration to come to the negotiating table. And when that happens, Confederate independence is almost guaranteed. He sees that in 1862. That's what governs his great campaign into Maryland. And it's what governs the campaign that takes him into Pennsylvania in 1863 and culminates at the Battle of Gettysburg. He had the strategic vision, a strategic vision that other Confederate officers and leaders did not often manifest. One of the things that really impressed me, I've always been fascinated by Antietam because Lee seems to be so much in command of himself and so willing to run risks that are a function of his understanding of McClellan. And the idea that McClellan has the slows, and therefore he actually has the time 
to pull together his army. But several times I've gone to Antietam and just tried to imagine Lee riding back and forth up on that ridgeline, able to see most of the battlefield, and calmly moving small pockets of troops to stop the Union again and again and again all day long, when I think in some ways it's one of his most extraordinary victories. It's almost like he, in a real crisis, he gets ice water in his veins, and he gets calmer rather than more emotional. I don't know, as you looked at it, how you saw it. Lee was one of those people who operated clearly and unambiguously under pressure. I mean, for most of us, when the pressure's on, ah, we go to pieces. <laughs> we can't handle it. Lee is one of those rare people for whom pressure that way, if anything, concentrated his mind. He operated very well under pressure, very well under adverse circumstances. And Antietam certainly presented adverse circumstances. I mean, for one thing, physically he was having difficulty. Two weeks before, his famous warhorse traveler had bolted while he was sitting on the ground holding the reins and dragged him. He sprained both wrists, broke some bones in his wrists. And at Antietam, his hands are still bandaged. He can mount Traveler, but he's got to get assistance to do it. So he's got physical difficulties that he's dealing with at the same time as he's dealing with the Union Army. But he had called McClellan's bluff. I mean, in a sense, the Battle of Antietam shouldn't have taken place on September 17th. It should have taken place on September 16th. Because when McClellan receives these lost orders, special orders number 191, that were found by Union soldiers in a field near Frederick, Maryland, that itemize the location of Lee's troops. McClellan has that, and he suddenly realizes he's got the mind of Robert E. Lee right in front of him for this campaign. Suddenly, McClellan, the stationary engine, moves in at high speed, rushes over the Catoctans, storms through South Mountain, and at that point, Lee backs off against the Potomac River at the Antietam Creek. And if McClellan had really had a little bit of Lee's audacity, McClellan would have moved right away on the 16th. And if he had, the result would have been dramatically different from what it was. But McClellan doesn't. McClellan suddenly moves into low gear. It's Mr. Caution again. And Lee is bluffing. Lee is bluffing, hoping that he can stall McClellan, reunite his army, and perhaps resume that movement up through Hagerstown into Pennsylvania. Now, that doesn't exactly happen. But Lee hoped it would. Why does McClellan stop? Well, partly because he was George McClellan, but also because, you know what McClellan's idea of a successful conclusion of that campaign was? Not a battle. McClellan's idea of a successful conclusion of the campaign was Lee withdraws across the Potomac back into Virginia. That's what McClellan thinks is the moment when he can declare victory. And McClellan, in a way, doesn't particularly want to crush the South. No, and there really always hangs in the air after Antietam this sense that McClellan was pulling punches. There were rumors all through McClellan's staff that first of all, McClellan had had communications with Lee the day after the battle, suggesting that the armies had now fought each other to a standstill. And since it was a standstill, what they really needed to do was to turn around jointly and march on Washington, because the real problem causing this war was Abraham Lincoln. And that McClellan and Lee would together confront Lincoln and force a peace settlement. There were rumors like that. Do we have any paperwork proof? No, but we do know communications were going back and forth. We also know because Lincoln himself personally calls in one of McClellan's staffers, Major John Key, sits Key down and says, I've heard rumors that at Antietam, McClellan's purpose was to fight to a standstill, not to achieve a victory or a resolution. Is this true? And Key gives this fumbling answer like, well, yeah, the idea was we really weren't going to try to annihilate them, and we were going to just let everything go as it was, and that eventually people would get tired and there'd be a peace settlement with Confederate independence. Lincoln fires the guy on the spot. This is Lincoln conducting basically an intelligence interrogation. That's how seriously. Lincoln took this. 
So there is a part of this in which George McClellan bears more than a little responsibility for falling short of his goals and his responsibilities as a Union soldier and as a general. Yeah, because even on the 17th that he launched a general offensive of all of his troops simultaneously, he probably would have broken Lee's army. Yeah, Lee did not have enough people to hold all that terrain. Right. The other great battle, which I think is equally astonishing psychologically, is Chancellorsville. I mean, you have Lee totally out of position, with a third of his army still in southern Virginia, and he calmly goes on offense. I mean, it's one of the most amazing tactical battles I've ever studied. Oh, it is. It became, in fact, the model for Norman Schwarzkopf's attack in the Gulf War, that loping flank attack that completely undid Saddam Hussein's Republican Guard, this fabled Republican Guard that was supposed to be so dangerous. Schwarzkopf literally said afterwards, he was modeling himself on Lee at Chancellorsville. And what Lee does, first of all, he's got Stonewall Jackson, whom he trusts implicitly. Two more unalike soldiers you could not imagine. I mean, here's Lee from gentlemanly Virginia and Stonewall Jackson from the Presbyterian Shenandoah. <laughs> They would never have crossed paths in normal society, but the war throws them together. Jackson almost intuits Lee's own thinking, and they sit down the evening before Jackson's great attack. They talk about the possibilities. Finally, Lee says, all right, what do you want to do? Jackson says, I want to move around their flank. What do you want to use? My entire corps. And Lee pauses for a moment and says, all right, go ahead. With those very simple words, Jackson launches on this great attack that just crushes Hooker's army like an eggshell. But it requires Lee to hold Hooker's army for about half a day with only one third of his army, because the other third, of course, is with Longstreet in southern Virginia. Someone once said about Lee, this was Joseph Ives, who was on the staff of Jefferson Davis, said to Edward Porter Alexander, an artilleryman in the Army of Northern Virginia, later rises to become chief of artillery. Porter Alexander was talking to Joseph Ives about Lee, and he was expressing some doubts. This is very early on. And Ives says, no, 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 you're wrong. You're wrong. Lee is the very personification of audacity. And People have read that audacity and they've sometimes said, well, that meant he was reckless. No, he wasn't. He was audacious, but it was always a very logical audacity. Lee was always calculating the balance of forces. Now, he didn't make numbers everything. He was always willing to accept numerical inferiority. But even the numerical inferiority was part of his calculation. So yeah, not recklessness, but yes, audacity. And he's willing to do things because he knows that he can take a larger enemy by surprise, catch that enemy like some muscle-bound giant, and defeat them. And he does that over and over again. I don't know whether this is apocryphal or real, but I think there's a point where Lee finally says, sooner or later they'll find a general I don't understand. That's what he said about McClellan. They were not sure who was going to replace McClellan. And he said, you know, McClellan and I, we just understood each other so well. One of these days, they'll put up a general I don't understand. Although he then crushes Hooker. Oh, yes. Not only that, but he had crushes Burnside before Hooker, deals with Burnside, deals with Hooker, comes really, Newt, within an ace of defeating Meade at Gettysburg. People don't realize what a close-run thing Gettysburg was. But over and over again, he does that. He even stymies. Ulysses Grant. Ulysses Grant's overland campaign is a victorious campaign for Grant. It's a great example of campaigning. But Lee was not the pushover that the Western Confederate armies had been. And Lee drags that campaign out for months and months, and then, of course, into the great siege of Richmond. I've always thought that one of Grant's great problems was he couldn't get McClellan's Army of the Potomac to move at the speed of the Western Army. 
that he and Sherman had created an army that was probably at least as fast as Jackson. And so Grant had this idea of how he would fight, but they couldn't close because the Army of Northern Virginia had learned not to close. And does that make sense to you as somebody who's really studied this? Well, I think so. I think the Army of the Potomac looked upon Grant with a certain skepticism. When Grant comes east to take charge of things, soldiers in the Army of the Potomac were used to generals being put up and then falling down. And that included generals from the West, John Pope being an example of Second Bull Run. If anything, they were more skeptical of people from the West because always the reasoning ran, well, they might have done real well on the West, but that's kind of the minor leagues. You know, here in the East, it's the major leagues and you've got to play against Robert E. Lee, and that's really going to be more of a problem than people are anticipating. So there was this moment when the Army of the Potomac was skeptical of him. Also, the commanding officers in the Army of the Potomac are a very different breed than the ones in the West. In the West, you would most often find the people who were most dedicated to winning the war, and politically speaking, the ones who were most supportive of the Lincoln administration. Even people whom Grant didn't get along with in the West, like John McClernand, were clearly and unambiguously in support of the war and in support of the Lincoln administration. You come to the Army of the Potomac, and it's a very different story. You can separate out the different infantry corps especially at Gettysburg, you can separate out the seven infantry corps of the Army of the Potomac on a spectrum of politics. And there are some of those units, like the Second Corps and the Fifth Corps, these are basically democratic units which are not in sympathy with the Lincoln administration, and they really don't make any bones about it. They provide a real source of inertia that Grant has to cope with. And Grant, one by one, has to weed them out and refashion the army. And I think there's really something could be said for the fact that the army that Grant rebuilds during the siege of Richmond, I mean, people don't think of a siege as a moment for rebuilding an army. And I think the siege has distracted attention from the fact that that is what Grant was really doing. The army that he rebuilds during the siege and which then takes off in pursuit after Lee and runs him to ground at Appomattox Courthouse. That army of the Potomac is a very different army than the one he set out from in May of 1864 from the Rapidan with. That's the army which is beginning to move like the Army of the West. And had he had that army going into the wilderness, Lee would have suddenly had a whole different set of problems. And I think, isn't it Sheridan who is the only person to strip a corps commander in the field during a battle? Yes, this was at Five Forks. Sheridan was so unhappy with Governor Warren's performance as commander of the Fifth Corps that he sacks Warren right on the spot. Warren spends the rest of his life trying to get some kind of restitution for what was done to him. And in truth, Sheridan probably was out of line doing what he did, but that was Phil Sheridan. And Grant backed Phil Sheridan to the hilt Hay had been backing Sheridan since the beginning of the campaign back in 1864. And it's Sheridan who gets ahead of Lee's army, heads them off at Appomattox Courthouse, provides the roadblock that is going to force Lee to come to a halt and listen to what Grant has to say about surrender terms. I once, many years ago, borrowed from the Army War College Sherman's field orders when he took over the Army of the West because I wanted to get a feel for why they were so fast. And the orders begin, the commanding general will not be taking a tent into the field. And every unit will have one wagon for ammunition and one wagon for medical supplies. And the commanding general intends that this army will not be encumbered. Now, you take that and then you look at Meade's inability to leave the siege guns behind. And you get some sense of the difference in the two styles. I have to ask you one last question that is just fun. Test your Yankee biases here. Had Lee accepted Scott's offer, do you think it would have led to a radically different civil war? That is extremely difficult to say. And the reason that I'm dodging that a bit is because Lee's first assignment for the Confederacy was the one in Western Virginia. And in truth, he doesn't really shine all that well. And I've often wondered if 
Lee had taken command of the federal forces in the field. The federal forces in 1861 that were instead commanded by Irving McDowell and went to this embarrassing defeat at first Bull Run. I wonder if Lee would have done better because you could scarcely call these things armies. We're not paying ourselves a national compliment, I know, but the terrible truth is that these Civil War armies start out as little more than collections of Boy Scouts and firemen. And could Lee have imposed some kind of system and order on them and taken them down to Bull Run and achieved a victory there? A victory that would have collapsed the Confederacy right at the beginning? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe Robert E. Lee might not have been able to do better than Irwin McDowell did. And as I said, I'm thinking that way because I see what happened in Western Virginia. So for that reason, it's extremely difficult to speculate. If Lee had had the chance to impose the kind of order on the federal army that George McClellan had, then perhaps it would have been very different because Lee was a firm believer. He had learned the lesson taught by Winfield Scott in Mexico of continuous offensive, that when you start an offensive, you keep at it, you keep on going. That's what you see when Lee takes charge on the peninsula against McClellan. If Lee had taken charge that way of an army that had really been whipped and organized into shape, the way McClellan whipped and organized the Army of the Potomac into shape by 1862, if Lee had been able to take charge of that kind of army and move into Virginia, then there would have been something that would have looked, I think, a lot like Grant's 1864 Overland campaign and would have been successful and would have captured Richmond. Possibly. But I have to underscore, possibly. This is raw speculation on my part. You mentioned twice the Peninsula Campaign, and I've always been curious why, given what happened, I think, at Malvern Hill, where Union artillery finally just stops the Confederate Army in its tracks and causes substantial casualties, I've always wondered why Lee orders the suicidal frontal assault on the third day at Gettysburg when Longstreet is saying to him, you know, you don't have enough men. That sized unit can't possibly go up that hill. And it's kind of like almost desperation. Well, bear in mind that Malvern Hill is a different story than the third day at Gettysburg. Malvern Hill was a mistake. Lee misread the situation. And that happens sometimes even to the greatest of commanders. The third day at Gettysburg was different. For two days prior to Pickett's great charge on July 3rd, Lee's army had mauled the Army of the Potomac. Of the seven infantry corps and the Army of the Potomac, five of them were, for all practical purposes, out of action. And the one that was holding the ground behind Cemetery Hill, the second corps, had already lost one of its divisions. Each of the remaining two divisions had lost one brigade. Effectively, there were really only about 3,500 federal troops able to defend Cemetery Hill. So what Lee was launching was not an irrational foolish assault. He had plenty of precedent for it. You fetch back a few years to the Crimean War and Lord Raglan's assault at the Alma against far greater odds and a far more deeply entrenched Russian position. And that head-on attack is a spectacular success. You look in 1859 to Napoleon III at Solferino in the North Italian War. Exactly the same kind of attack gets launched against the Austrian forces. Again, spectacularly successful. Lee had every reason to believe that the attack on July 3rd would succeed. He had the numbers, he had the advantage, the Union Army was on the ropes. And much of the story about Longstreet, I am convinced, tends to be a post-battle and post-war confection, most of it by Longstreet himself. I don't think Longstreet's objections at that moment probably looked anything like what he made them look like later. I think in later years, he really wanted to distance himself and show that he had been smarter than Robert E. Lee. That's a temptation that post-war memoirs often have. I don't think that really manifested itself, at least not on the terms Longstreet later described it. You did still have the largest corps in the Union Army, the 6th, sitting behind the hill. Oh, yeah. And George Meade wants that for his reserve. Because George Meade is on that hill, back at Powers Hill. 
George Meade is not where his statue is on Cemetery Hill. George Meade was not there at the apex of Pickett's Charge. George Meade was down on Powers Hill next to the Baltimore Pike. And I can remember years ago with my wife traipsing around Powers Hill, literally before they'd cleaned it up and you could see where the monuments were, traipsing around Powers Hill and wondering, what on earth is this here for? What are Union forces here for? Why is Meade here at the, at the climax of the battle? Then I look at the Baltimore Pike and I realize why. Meade expected to be overrun. The Baltimore Pike was going to be the retreat path. And Powers Hill was where he parks batteries of artillery to cover that retreat. Even on the Union side, there's a real expectation that this attack of Lee's is going to succeed. Now, years later, somebody put the question to George Pickett. Why did the Confederate attack at Gettysburg fail? And Pickett's response was, I love this. Pickett's response was, I think the Yankees had something to do with it. And at the end of the day, I think it really was the remarkable, almost unpredictable tenacity of those Union soldiers from the Second Corps, the Philadelphia Brigade, the 59th New York, the 20th Massachusetts, the chewed up remnants of the 1st Minnesota, the 1st Delaware, the Harper's Ferry Cowards Brigade, those people were going to die in their places rather than run. And much of the credit for what happens on Cemetery Hill that afternoon of July 3rd is a tribute to Yankee gumption. It's not a condemnation of Lee. It's not suggesting that under other circumstances, Lee wouldn't have succeeded. But at that moment, those Union soldiers were going to die right where they were rather than give in. They had had enough giving in for two years previously. Well, and that may have been the great psychological problem of finally fighting in Pennsylvania on Union territory. That certainly made a big difference because they knew they were on their home ground and they knew that if they lost here, then that was really going to be the end. If the Army of the Potomac was defeated at Gettysburg, Soldiers in that army speculated afterwards that the army itself would have gone to pieces. They'd just been beaten too many times. It would have gone to pieces. Lee would have crossed the Susquehanna. The major cities on the East Coast would have erupted in riots. As it is, New York City erupted in draft riots two weeks after the battle. Can you imagine a situation in which, with those draft riots prevailing in New York City, the mayor of New York City has to call in Robert E. Lee? to preserve order in New York City. Is that impossible? Well, it's distant, but I would be reluctant to say that it would have been impossible if what had happened on Cemetery Hill on July 3rd had gone in the other direction. Your book is going to do very well. I am confident it will be controversial and that you will have people on the left who are aghast that you could write a book that doesn't portray Lee as a devil and an evil person unworthy of being mentioned in polite society. On the other hand, I think it will turn out to be a great contribution to the history of the United States. And I always love chatting with you. You're one of the best raconteurs that I ever have a chance to learn from. And I really appreciate you taking the time today to share with us about your book. And we will have on our show page, we will have a link so people can buy the book, which of course, as a smart author, you would urge everyone to do so they can personally have a copy. Absolutely. I'm all in favor of that. All right. I'll say one more thing, Newt, about what governs writing a biography like this. And maybe this will speak to people who would otherwise be aghast. Why are you writing about Robert E. Lee? I remember a comment from the great literary critic John Gardner in his book on moral fiction. He said, in great art, in true art, no true compassion without will no true will without compassion. The historian has to make judgments. You have to exercise will, but you have to do it with compassion. You have to make the two meet. And that is what I've tried to do in this book. So I've made judgments, but I've also tried to operate within the sphere of what Gardner described as true compassion as well. Malice toward none, charity for all. So Lincoln has affected you. I believe so. Thank you again. It's great. All right. Thank you, Newt. Thank you to my guest, Alan Gelzo. 
You can get a link to buy his new book, Robert E. Lee, A Life, on our show page at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.